Well, now's the, uh, now's the time to grab your Bibles uh, or your service sheets, um, and we're going to uh, read from God's Word. Uh, so the first reading is um, Hebrews 7 uh, from verse 22. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now there have been uh, many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to, to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly uh, meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness, but the oath which uh, came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. Now the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at the sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it uh, that you make everything according to the pattern shown, shown you on the mountain. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator, uh, of which he is mediator, is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. And then 1 John 1, uh, starting at verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for, for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Thank you. Good morning. Good to see you. Can I just highlight two further things next? Uh, Saturday, 10 till 2, there's an opportunity to serve Stamford Green. Um, they are doing a spruce-up morning, as every school seems to do once a year. If you fancy painting, Come along, 10 o'clock. If you're not just painting anything, they'll tell you what to do. Um, freestyle, you know, spray paint. If you fancy getting, getting some um, chip bark, some stuff like that, my particular favourite was preparing mud garden. 
So if you fancy doing whatever that takes, bring your wellies. Um, let me know if you want to come. I'll let them know. There's free tea, coffee. They're doing some hot dogs and stuff as well. Um, 10 till 2. You can't just come for lunch. You've got to work for it. Um, if you want to come and serve the school here, it's a great opportunity. Please uh, let me know. Um, secondarily, more importantly, probably, um, on the 21st, so it's two Sundays time, I'd like us to gather as we did before in January, because finally, and it's taken quite a while, we've got our hands on the documentation that we've been working on behind the scenes from the FIEC. We have two affiliations, one is with the uh, group of English and Scottish and Welsh and even Irish churches called the FIEC, the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches. We align ourselves with what they believe and hold dearly. And we also align ourselves with a, an international worldwide group of churches called Acts 29. Um, so we are in the process of standing on our own two feet as a church. We're working out how to govern ourselves and we want you to see what we've been working on. So in two Sundays time, please save the date. We'd love you to uh, bring some food as we did before to share something for yourself to enjoy, a little bit more, and then we get together, we'll, we'll turn our chairs the other way, we'll use the projector, I've got some exciting word documents to show you, do I hear a woo? woo? Okay, you won't be a woo when you see them, but it's really, really important, so please can you put that in the diary, I'll send out an email in the next few days to say 21st of May, we'll turn our chairs the other way, we'll even use a projector to show I'm in touch with modern technology, and it's very, very important to say we are almost at the point of saying we stand on our own two feet, legally, financially. Um, we're already there as a church, we exist. But I'd love you, uh, for as many of you who can be there, to be there. Kids invited as well, 21st of May. Let me pray. Father, from the very beginning of time, when there was nothing, there was something, because you spoke and you gave life. And it's a life-giving word that still exists today. We think of the book of Ezekiel. Um, 800 years or so before the birth of Jesus and there's a valley of dry bones. Nothing existed. Death existed. And yet you spoke a word through your prophet and life was given. And we think how John in his gospel begins his gospel by taking us all the way back, not just to the beginning of history and creation, but even before. And we are told by John and from his lips and pen that there was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Father, thank you that you have not changed. And so just as you gave life at the beginning, you still give life today. A lot of us feel weary and tired. Uh, please, would you give us life afresh? By your spirit, make these words not just understandable to us. We don't just want to understand. We want to live afresh. And so we need your help. Give us energy. Give us concentration. But we pray even more by your spirit, the spirit of truth, he would work in our lives to so that we will see Jesus as precious again. Amen. Uh, a year ago, we got a TV, and we got a TV license. First time we've had a TV license for years and years and years. We've gone from uh, famine to feasting, so we've gone from having Netflix at five pound a month to having Sky, and we've got everything for a year because I got a deal. But uh, this week I was watching uh, an advert that I found very, very moving. The advert, as it was uh, portrayed, told me that a thousand people a day are told that they have cancer. Life-threatening or life-ending cancer. Being a bear of little brain, I started to think about that sentence. I thought a thousand people, so that's 7,000 a week, that would be a lot a month. That would be a really big number a year. That's a lot of people, a thousand people. A thousand people a day, 
A thousand people every day wake up and hear news that they weren't expecting. Perhaps they've got a cough, perhaps they've got a cold, perhaps they've had a scan and they're going back into a waiting room. A thousand people a day find out that they have life-threatening or life-ending news. It's called cancer. And then at the end of the advert from Cancer Research, they were saying, please give two pounds a day. Please give two pounds a day or maybe even two pounds a month. We can beat this together. And it's a really good cause to give to. But I thought a thousand people a day receive life-threatening or life-ending news. That is really, really serious. It was portrayed in a wonderfully moving, um, authentic way from Cancer Research. who do a lot of good work. And it made me think about the beginning of this book, 1 John, that we're looking at. Please turn to it on your service sheet or in your Bible or on your electric device. Um, John wants us to be under no illusion. He didn't have a, a cameraman. He didn't have a visual aids. But he said, we've seen Jesus. He really existed. We've seen him with our eyes. We've touched him with our hands. But very quickly, having said the authenticity, the reliability, the historicity of the person called Jesus Christ who walked the earth, and wanting us to know complete fellowship, verse 3, with the Godhead, with Father, Son, and Spirit, wanting us to know deep, satisfying, life-giving joy, verse 4, John, as we saw last week, begins to change tone, and it gets very somber and very serious quite quickly. Because we may not have cancer in our bodies at this point, but John is saying, and the whole gospel is about, a life-threatening disease that's even more serious. It's called sin. You can see that from verse 6. Every single one of us has this disease. Verse 6, John says, If you say you have fellowship with God, but walk in darkness, you're deceived. That means there are many people, perhaps in this room, definitely in this community, certainly in this world, who have a life-threatening disease, have an eternal life-thwarting disease called sin called rebellion against God, called, as Nick put it, shove off God, I'm in charge, no to your rules. It's called sin. But they think they're Christians, but they're not. Verse 6. They think they have fellowship with God, but they don't. Verse 6. Verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, no, that doesn't apply to me, we deceive ourselves. We saw this last week. Verse 10. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. In other words, John is saying there are self-deceived people in the world who think they don't have a problem, but they do. It's as if uh, the x-ray is on the screen showing that you've got cancer of the lung lining, but you say, no, it's not true. Well, says the doctor, do you have any reasons to base your conviction on this? Well, no, but it's not true. But the evidence is there, and I've got a PhD in, uh, in cancer studies, and, but it's not true. Well, we can be self-deceived about cancer from an x-ray that we receive, or we can be self-deceived, verse 8 and verse 10. We can even call God a liar if we say we haven't got the life-threatening eternal life thwarting disease that affects our whole nature and it's called sin. We saw last week, and I just want to rub it in, depending on how you think about sin depends on how big an understanding you have of the disease that is in each of our hearts. If you think of sin just as breaking the rules, if you think there is a standard that is to be attained to, you can think of yourself as uh, having sin occasionally when you break the rules, when you fall short. But that's too small a definition of what sin is. It's not that you just do sin. John is saying you have sin. It's in our, it's in our DNA. It's a culture of our worldview. It's a lens through which we, we look and the decisions that we made are all shaped by this default position of godlessness, of human-centeredness. It's called sin and rebellion. 
It's not just enough to know that we have sinned, we've transgressed, we've both broken the rule, we've fallen short. There is a culture in which we exist, an ocean in which we swim, and it's called sin. It's bigger than any small definition you have. And that's what verse 10 is saying. If you claim you've not sinned, if you claim that doesn't apply to you, if you claim that the x-ray is wrong, you're calling God a liar. You're saying that God is wrong. And God never lies because he's truth. And he's the creator of the universe who knows everything. Sin is like a culture. When we lived in America um, for three years, it's a great opportunity to live outside of your culture so that you understand a new one, but even more importantly, so that when you return to your own one, you see it more clearly. What's the statement? America and England are two countries separated by a common language. Well, so you think. So there was a time, very early on in our stay, where we went to the mall because we wanted a drink. And Americans taught us how to speak. I never knew, I thought water was spelt with a T, but apparently I'm wrong. So we went to a checkout and we said, can we get some water please? And they said, huh? And it was like that. They said it two or three times and they, eventually we learned how to speak American, not English. The word is spelt with a D, water, water. Once we got that, we were okay and we got some water. But here we have a definition of sin that is not small, it's all encompassing. It's a culture in which we exist. It's a methodology through which we think through. Everything is shaped by this culture. How we raise our children if we have any, how we work, how we relate to our friends, how we use our resources of time and energy and money, our physical energies. It's all shaped by what's good for me, not what is God-centered. Sin is human-centered. And John says, if you do not understand that this goes through every fiber of your being, if you don't see how big the problem is, you're not going to love the solution. This is all-encompassing, verses 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. This is a huge, life-shaping issue. All of us are saturated and swimming in the ocean of sin. It's at the very heart of our first parents, and we inherited it from them. If you don't believe this, you're not just a rebel. Verse 10 says, you call God a liar, and God does not lie. Now, why is John banging on, and why am I trying to rub in this great big problem? Because if you don't see the problem, you won't love the solution. And in chapter 2, verse 1, we begin to see the solution. If we've got a disease, and you don't see how bad the disease is, you don't see how wonderful the cure is. So let's look at the solution, let's look at the cure, chapter 2, verse 1. My dear children... I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. What is John saying? Three questions. Here's the first question. First of all, what is an advocate? Number one, what is an advocate? Now you might think, hang on, I'm looking down at chapter 2, verse 1, and I do not see the word advocate. That's one problem. What you have here is one Greek word that the translators who gave us the NIV, which is a great translation of the Bible, they kind of try and unpack it and explain it by expanding it and making one word into about five or six. So you see the little phrase, when we have, when you sin, a parakletos, a comforter, a helper with the Father. We have someone who intercedes for us when we sin. Now, the idea of that, which the ESV, I think, puts in one word, which I think is very helpful, is the word advocate. 
I think it's a good translation. I think it's a helpful translation that I want us to think about. What is an advocate? What does it mean that we have one who speaks to the Father in our defence? What does that mean? An advocate is someone that you have a legal relationship with. It's an official person. It's someone who uh, fights for you, someone who represents you. Whatever they achieve is yours. If they win, you win. If you lose, if they lose, you lose. An advocate is a legal representative that you have a close relationship with. When they speak, they speak for you. You don't need to speak. When they stand, they stand for you. You don't need to stand. So it's a legal connotation. Another word is a, a federal representative connotation. It can have that meaning as well. But everything they do is transferred to us. Everything that we've done is covered by them. They stand in our place. So here are some examples. Number one, warfare. Warfare, you have an advocate. In the olden days, when people used to line up, not with military position, but uh, with horses and uh, chariots at the back, and people were standing there with uh, warfare uh, implements such as spears and swords and daggers and shields, you would have the battle of champions. If you didn't want bloodshed on a battle of the Somme kind of standard, you would say, rather than us all charging at each other, let's have a federal head, let's have a representative, let's have a champion, and you would have a battle of champions one person who would represent one side of the warring fractions. So rather than thousands and thousands of people dying, you would say, let's select the strongest, not the weakest. Let's select the skillful, not the less skillful. Let's get our most experienced, our most trained fighter to fight on our behalf. David and Goliath is a great example of the battle of champions. If you had a skillful champion, well, you were skillful because they're fighting for you. If you had a foolish champion, hard luck, you were going to be treated as foolish as well. If they won, it's as if you won, because they're winning on your behalf. If you were defeated, you will be treated as, you, as if you had lost. But this was really brought home to me last year when I found myself, this is kind of a trade secret, in Kingston Court. I was in there for the first time, and I thought I've seen LA Law, I can represent myself, I'm showing my age again. I thought I've seen lots of... Uh, kind of legal dramas, I know what to do. I did my preparation and I thought I would go and there'd be a big kind of you know, a witness stand and there'd be a big judge with a tea towel on their head and there wasn't. I was ushered into a little small side place, a small court, but there was an oak bar that was very shiny and there were four people in that courtroom and I wish there was only three. There was the judge who did not have a tea towel on his head. There was myself. There was somebody else that I was trying to get something off but the problem was, I was representing myself with all my legal acumen, which was zero, but they had an advocate. They had an advocate. Not only is this a battle of champions, a representative head, often we see and understand the word advocate in the legal sphere. And what happened as I was there trying to represent myself was the advocate represented the other party with whom I was trying to get something off. The defendant didn't say a word. The legal person who they had just accrued for free did all the speaking for them, knew exactly what to say, tore me to shreds, he spoke on their behalf. The rest of the story is positive, however. These are two meanings of the word advocate, that Jesus is our advocate. There's a man called Charles Hodge, 100 or so years ago, he put it like this. The relationship of every Christian to Jesus as our advocate can be described in this way. The relationship of Christ to his people is that of a legal advocate to a client, a law room. 
the former person, Jesus, personates the later. You may not even have to appear in court. You are not heard. You are lost in your advocate, who for the time being is your representative. The advocate, not you, is seen. The advocate, not you, is heard. Jesus is our advocate. When you sin, there is a person. If anyone does sin, chapter 2, verse 1, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. He speaks on our behalf. He stands in our stead. He's before the judge of all the world. And he speaks in our place. If we have an advocate, then what's he doing? What's he doing up there? Point number two. If Jesus is our advocate, what's he doing? He's standing, first of all. He's talking. If you stick with the lawyer illustration, everybody knows why you hire a lawyer, apart from me, because I didn't hire one. Because they know what to say. They're really good at talking. They know the law. They know the case to bring. They know not what to say and when not to say it. They know what to say and when to say it. They can make a case with the evidence that is needed. And this is through the Bible as well, especially in the book of Hebrews. It says, Jesus Christ is our high priest before the Father. That's why we read from Hebrews 7 into 8. It means Jesus Christ is standing on our behalf legally in our place, representing us before the Father in heaven. He knows what to say. He knows when to say it. He's our advocate. He's not just speaking on our behalf. He's not just saying words that come into our head. He's pleading. He's making his case. He's presenting evidence. But how is he doing it? Let's look at chapter 2, verse 1. It went past me for many years. It does not say, at the end of chapter 2, verse 1, that Jesus Christ is merciful. He's going before the judge and he's saying, please, judge, act in a merciful way. He doesn't say in chapter 2, verse 1, that he's being persuasive. Here's some really good things that you need to hear, judge. Here's some really good points that you need to understand. Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. A really good lawyer. You've seen it in the films. A few good men. Tom Cruise going before, you can't handle the truth. And all those other ones. A really good lawyer does not just bank on people's emotions. He doesn't just bank on his uh, legal acumen alone. He doesn't bank on his sharp suit or her sharp suit. He doesn't bank on their experience. They have a case. And here is Jesus, not asking for mercy, not trying to twist his father's arm, the judge of all the earth. He comes before as, as the righteous one. Now what does that mean? Jesus is not up there just asking for forgiveness. He's not asking for mercy. He's not pleading. He's saying, I'm the righteous one. He's there saying to his father, I am the righteous one, and I want to remind you, judge, of what the law is. I want you to remind you of what your promises are. I want to remind you that you have had mercy to reconcile the whole world to yourself. It was your idea from beginning to end. I took a huge part of it in dying on the cross for the sins of the world. But it was your plan, it was your purposes, and sins have been paid for already. This is not mercy, this is not forgiveness alone. I'm not going to persuade you with a clever argument. I stand before you, Father, as the righteous one. I was thinking this week, how do I understand Jesus pleading on behalf of me in the courtroom of heaven? How do I think that works? I've been thinking for many years, it goes something like this. 
Jesus speaking on my behalf. Yeah, I know Nigel's had a bad week. I know he's done that thing. I know he's behaved in that way. I know he's been to that place. I know he's done that stuff. But please have mercy on him again. I think that's completely wrong because I think I understand this sentence a little bit more. Jesus Christ is the righteous one. I think it's more like this. I say it very carefully and respectfully. Father, yes, I know. Let's choose Mary. Father, I know that Mary did it again this week, but I've died the death she should have died. I've lived the life she should have lived in her place. I am her advocate. She is lost in me. Father, when you look at her, you have to see me. You have to see all that I've done. You have to see all that I am. Therefore, Father, it would be unjust for you to take two payments for this sin. I've already paid for her sin. Therefore, Father, I do not ask for mercy. I demand justice. Here's Jesus standing with all his courage, with the wounds of the cross on his hands, and he's saying, I don't want you to be merciful. I stand before you as one who paid for the sins of the world. Verse 2. I paid, I've made atonement for the sins of the world. I've satisfied your justice at the cross. I stand before you as, not the judge, but I stand before you as the advocate. And I want you to have mercy on Mary, on Rob, on Andy, on uh, everybody here, because I'm the righteous one, and I've paid for their sins in full. God is just. Chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, God the Father is faithful to forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. God is just. But imagine the scene. Imagine the scene where you had a judge, a man or a woman, and before them, as they sit in their uh, courtroom, comes one of their children. They've done something wrong, they've broken a speed limit, and they come before them. That would never happen because they wouldn't be just. They'd say, oh, it's fine. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink, I'll let you off. Mercy would outweigh justice. Mercy would outweigh justice. But here is Jesus, and he's saying, I want your justice to outweigh your mercy. I want your justice, Father, to outweigh mercy. Justice has to prevail. Justice has to be seen for what it is. And here's John in verse 1, and he's saying, Christ the righteous stands in your stead, in your place. He speaks for you, he stands for you, he's interceded for you once and for all. He doesn't just pay the penalty for you, he's not just redeeming you, he's not just ransoming you, he's standing for you as the righteous one. He's the one who stands for us. He's our champion. He's our federal head. He's our archegos. He's the one that goes before us and completes our faith. He's the author and finisher of our faith. He's the victor. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. He's the archegos. He's the one that goes before us as our champion, as our federal head, and defeats all our enemies at the cross. And he's the one who stands before his Father in heaven and says, look at me, not at them. And I've paid for all their sins that they have done, that they will do, and I've paid in full. I don't want you to be merciful to them. Father, I want you to be just. Because the wrath that is due to their sin was poured out on me as I stood in their stead on the cross. It's the gospel, friends. Here he is, our champion, our federal head. So what does it mean to us? That's point three. What's it going to change about you? If you see that Jesus Christ is our advocate, he's standing in our stead, he's speaking for us. If you see that he's pleading on our behalf, that's the second point, that's what he's doing. Father, look at the fact that I am righteous, not them. Don't look at them, look at me. 
Don't make them pay for their sins again. I've paid for their sins in full. What's that going to change? I think there's at least two things. There's always two. Number one, how you and I deal with guilt. How do you and I deal with guilt? What's this going to change if we see Jesus Christ as our advocate, our advocate again? I was thinking again this week, most people have a voice that comes to me pretty often. I don't hear voices too often in my head, but sometimes I do. And when it comes to guilt, I certainly do. There is a, not the Philadelphia advert, but there's a, as if there's someone on my shoulder who says, how can you go and stand before those people knowing that? you've done this. How can you go and pray for that person when you think this? How can you go and when you, and so the little voice goes, it's guilt, it's guilt saying, someone putting the finger at me, saying you cannot stand before those people, you cannot do that, you cannot go to that place. There is a little voice that whispers in my ear and says I've done something wrong. Friends, how do you deal with that voice when it comes? I don't think it's just me. How do you deal with your guilt about things you've done in the past? Things you should have done, things you have done. This verse reminds us that it's not just about forgiveness. Our sins have been paid for in full. We have been forgiven. But if you think that's all you have, you won't understand and you don't understand that God is not just merciful, he's also just it's the justice of God that deals with your guilt. God, of course God is merciful. In his mercy, he planned for the salvation of the whole world. Everybody who trusts in King Jesus will be saved. It was Jesus uh, who obediently obeyed the Father's plan in eternity past, who came from heaven to earth, who relied on the presence of the Spirit, who achieved the plan of salvation by dying on the cross and was raised on the third day. Of course God is merciful. But it's not just his mercy, it's God's justice that demands this too. Paul in Romans 8 gets carried away when he understands the righteousness of Jesus and what that means to Christians. He says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul's getting carried away. He's understanding the legal courtroom aspect of our salvation. This is not rescue, this is not forgiveness, this is justice. And so he says, who will bring any charge against those who God has chosen? Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life. He's at the right hand of God and he is also interceding for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? This is not just forgiveness. This is justice. That means your sins are paid for in full. If you understood that, if I understood that, we can tell that voice to be quiet. We can tell that past guilt to be done away with because Jesus Christ is the righteous one. So he stands in our place. He says, I know what so-and-so has done. I know how Nigel's behaved. I know his life struggles to be something of integrity and authenticity. He makes loads of mistakes. He goes to loads of silly places. He thinks so selfishly. But I'm the righteous one and I paid for his sins in full. Therefore, guilt, be quiet. Because Jesus Christ is the righteous one. Do you believe it? If you don't know that, then you will never be able to deal with your guilt. But when you see it, that God looks not at you, but you in Christ Jesus, if you're a Christian, he stands on your behalf, he speaks in your place, he stands in your stead, then you can deal with your guilt. If you don't quite get it, keep talking, keep reading, keep praying. Jesus Christ is your advocate. When God looks at you, he sees King Jesus. 
And chapter 2, verse 1 says, He is the righteous one. He lived the life you should have lived. He died the death you earned. Jesus Christ is the righteous one. Here's the second thing, not just guilt. Despondency, disappointment. How does the fact that Jesus is our advocate help us deal when we're really discouraged, when we're really low, perhaps when we're really beginning to battle with depression? I think it's true to say that most people who struggle with despondency, discouragement at a really deep, heavy level, especially depression, it has something to do intimately with a loss of hope a loss of hope in their life, something that they were really banking on didn't materialise, something that they were dreaming that would come true that just fell into tatters. When people are discouraged and it leads perhaps to depression, often it has a lot to do with a loss of hope in their life. They've lost something that was really important to them, something that was precious to them and valuable, they've lost it. Something in their life that means so much that just didn't materialise. And hope seems just like a tea bag. It seems to have disappeared. And you get despondent and discouraged. But I think I know why that might be. Because there's something in your life that you're holding on to, that people hold on to, that they actually think is their record. They think that it's something that they can present to God and say, look, I am worthy because of this. And now it's in tatters. You can uh, give me your affection. You can approve of me because of this. See what I've done. See what I've achieved. These are some of the things that you can look at to say, I'm worthy that I can stand on my own two feet. I can stand before the throne of God. But when one of them falls through, perhaps someone who said they would love you doesn't. When the job that you thought was going to be great and that you could achieve and, and kind of it would give you status and standing, when that hasn't worked out, when your career has stopped, you can be despondent and discouraged. How does the fact that Jesus is your advocate that Jesus Christ is righteous in your stead. How does it apply to, to that if you think hope is lost, if you think you're discouraged, if you think your reputation is in tatters before the world, or but even in your own family? You need to understand the hiddenness. You need to understand the hiddenness that as Jesus stands before his Father, you are in him. Those two words are so precious. We are in him. If you have time this afternoon, go to Acts chapter 6 and 7. If you go to Acts chapter 6 and 7, you'll read the story of Stephen. Stephen was a great preacher in the early church. He was also the first martyr in the early church. And because he's preaching the gospel, he's preaching about salvation through grace alone, only through Jesus Christ, the, the religious authorities and rulers are getting really hot under the collar, and they get so hot under the collar, they say, we want him dead. We're just going to do away with him. We're going to execute him. And so they have him bound, they have him arrested, and they take him outside and they're going to stone him to death in the most graphic and one of the most horrible ways to die. And as he's about to be stoned to death, God gives him a gift. He gives him an understanding of the principle we find in chapter 2, verse 1, that Jesus Christ is his advocate. He opens the heavens for Stephen, and Stephen looks up into heaven, and he sees a wonderful sight. I see heaven open, and I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They're just about to throw the first stone at his head to put him to death, and God gives him a gift of, of rending the heavens back, and he sees the reality that Jesus Christ is standing on his behalf, that Jesus Christ is interceding for him. He's advocating for him. Stephen's not saying a word, but he sees, as he's about to die, 
Jesus Christ standing in his stead. I think this is right. This is the only time in the whole Bible that Jesus Christ is described as standing before the Father. Nearly all the time it's sitting, because it's a finished work kind of picture. But here Jesus Christ is off his throne, as it were, and is pleading on his behalf. And what I thought about this week is, on earth, here's Stephen, he's about to lose his life. He's being condemned, he's been before a kind of a kangaroo court, he's had everything taken away from him, his reputation is in tatters. His livelihood is about to go. He's probably buried in his uh, sand up to his neck so he can't get away. His freedom is gone, everything is gone. Everything that the world prizes, Stephen has lost and he's about to lose his life. He hasn't got a name, he hasn't got a claim, he's got no popularity, he's got no success. He's about to be stoned to death. And yet, because God opens the heavens up and because he looks up and he sees Jesus Christ standing on his behalf, he understands the hiddenness. His face becomes radiant. And it's as if everything on earth suddenly goes into slow motion and he's taken up with the glory and beauty of King Jesus. He sees Jesus advocating for him and he kind of gets really excited and forgets what's about to happen. Friends, to the degree you have some similar understanding of that Jesus Christ is standing on your behalf, he's speaking on your behalf, when that voice comes of guilt, when you think hope is lost or it's fading fast, remember chapter 2, verse 1. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. If you grasp that, you'll be able to take rejection because Jesus Christ intercedes before the heavenly throne with me. You'll be able to take criticism better because he's speaking on your behalf. Whatever it is that weighs you down, that's a really deep, heavy burden on your heart, you'll be able to process that because Jesus Christ is interceding on your behalf when you fail, when you sin, when I sin. Jesus Christ is before the Father and he's saying, Father, it's not fair for you to take a second payment for that sin because I've paid for it in full. Father, don't act mercifully. Act justly.